while, uh, while I get situated here, I would like to uh, uh, thank Sam, Pastor Sam, for the opportunity. Um, I have enjoyed the Minor Prophets, and I don't know how he does a new one every week. I, I really don't, because even the short book of Nahum took uh, an amazing amount of time. So uh, thank you for being faithful and taking on one of the minor prophets every week. Um, I would like to explain uh, also why I'm sitting. Uh, some of you know I was uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer about four years ago, doing very, very well. Um, but I had had brain surgery and, and then radiation, and then I started immunotherapy. And there was a time when I couldn't stand as long as it took, so I kind of got used to, to teaching and preaching sitting down, and I kind of like it. Um, and so anyway, I get to sit, you get to sit, but together we get to look at God's Word. And I'm going to ask you to turn uh, to the book of Nahum, and then we're going to pray together. And then uh, we'll get started. Uh, Nahum's on page 1250, if you have the right Bible. Okay, let's pray. And uh, I'm glad you're here, glad you're, you're online. And let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, thank you again for the privilege of studying your word. We enjoy it so, and we believe the book of Nahum has a lot to say to us. And so we come to you and to your word with open eyes and open ears. And we ask that you would teach us what you would teach us. We ask it because of Jesus, in whose strong name we pray. Amen. You may be wondering, so why are we studying at all the minor prophets? And, and I, I kind of sat down and did some thinking about, you know, why, why don't we study the minor prophets? And I, there's probably some good reasons. They're not valid, but they're, they're, they're good. Um, it's an old history. I mean, the book of Nahum took place 2,600 years ago. I mean, I can hardly remember what I had for dinner last night. So 2,600 years pass it's kind of, to us, old history. And they're hard books to find. True confession, you know, confession's good for the soul. I have to admit that when Pastor Sam asked me to do the book of Nahum, I knew it was one of the minor prophets, but I had to stop and look it up and say, oh yes, it's on page 1250. They're hard to find. We, we don't study them very often. And if you start to study them, and especially if you look at some history, the books are full of weird names. I mean, if you studied a little bit about the history of the Assyrians, which the book of Nahum is all about, you run into Esherbanipal, you run into names like Tiglath-Pileser, the first, the second, and the third. You run into Nebuchadnezzar, Esarhaddon, just weird, weird names. And um, it, by the way, if you're looking for a, a, a baby's name, a little boy's name, and you'd like a name that's not very, you know, commonly used, well, I'd suggest to you, okay, never mind. They are, though, however, the minor prophets. And I think that's an unfortunate 
name, minor prophets, because rightly and, and very much wrongly, we think that maybe then they're somewhat less inspired or less important. And I would argue that they're very, very important and they're just as inspired. And then finally, uh, you know, they're just, they're repetitious. I mean, two weeks ago, Pastor Sam did the book of Obadiah and Obadiah was a, a, a God's judgment on Edom. And I think I said to him right afterwards, if you just took Edom and plugged in Nineveh, which is the object of the book of Nahum, you would have the same thing. So they're very repetitious. So I asked the question then, well, why study the minor prophets? And the answer is because Jesus did. Now, I don't want to go super spiritual on you, but the fact is Jesus Christ, his Bible was the Older Testament. And he studied as among the rest of it, he studied the book of Nahum. And if he did, then we should. Secondly, all scripture is profitable. In fact, 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And if you look at that in context, it's referring to the Older Testament, those scriptures. Now, the New Testament was in the process of being written and it too is inspired. But the focus of first, uh, Second Timothy chapter three is God speaking through the scriptures. It is inspired and it's good for us and it's all profitable for us. So I would submit to you this morning that Nahum is for our profit. It's for our good. I would argue we should study the minor prophets because it is history. I don't know if you've thought about this yet, but the Bible is the primary document for history in the ancient Near East. It's true, it's historical, it happened in space and time. And so we should understand that. We should know the history of the Bible. And then, and here's a word you don't use very often, uh, God erupts into human history all through the Bible. Now, erupt, I, R-R-U-P-T, erupt is different than the word erupt. Volcanoes erupt, they, they blow up, they blow out, they spew out. Erupt is the opposite, it's when something breaks in. And the message of the Bible is that God is constantly breaking in to the human story through Adam and Eve, through Noah, through um, Abraham, uh, through the prophets, through uh, all the way through to the person of the Lord Jesus himself, all the way through to the millennium and the judgment to come. God is constantly erupting, breaking in to human experience, and Nahum is just one example of that. And finally, it's because Nahum really shows the character of God. I think... Um, uh, more so even than, you know, maybe the history or more so than, than the specifics, uh, 
Nahum speaks about what God is like. And that, for me, for you, is profitable. So I want you to join me in Nahum chapter 1, verse 1 to, uh, well, well, we're going to look at the first seven verses. But look at the, the opening of the book. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. So we know who the book is from. It's from Nahum. It's about Nineveh. And he is from Elko. So he's our prophet. Well, actually, he's from Elkosh. But that was close enough, I thought. So he's our prophet. And so, uh, it, it, but it's a short little book. It's just about three chapters long, total of 47 verses. It's a short book. But chapter one focuses on the person of God. The book was written about 100 years after the book of Jonah, the very first minor prophet that we were exposed to. Um, so 100 years later, Nineveh had repented, but then they fell back in their old ways. Um, but God speaks and God begins to uh, judge Nineveh. But a hundred years has gone by. And, uh, and I, I would say, I would tell you more about the Ninevites. Uh, the, and Nineveh is the capital. Um, it speaks of, we would use the word, when we say Washington, for example, Washington says we should all wear masks, for example. Well, we mean our government, the country. And so when Nahum speaks about Nineveh, he is speaking about the Assyrians as a whole, Nineveh, which is the capital city. And I would tell you more about the, the Assyrians, but, um, but we've already heard about them. Uh, I would tell you in some detail, but there are some children present or some children online. Uh, they were an extremely, extremely cruel people. They loved war. They loved to do atrocities. They were just an absolute abominable pe bunch of people. And so God is finally, a hundred years afterwards, God is finally ready to judge them. Now in Nahum chapter one, we have uh, the person of God, the character of God. And that's always a good place to start. And then in chapters two and three, and I'm gonna trust you to read those on your own, but chapter two and chapter three describes the attack against the siege of the destruction of Nineveh, the plunder of Nineveh, and uniquely it's told in the present tense. It, it's as if it's so sure that it's going to happen that the Bible records it in the present tense. Nahum speaks it in the present tense. And, and chapters two and three are just, uh, they're, they're chilling. You can read in great detail about the attack on this capital city and what it's going to be like and what they're going to do. And, and so chapter two and chapter three, um, in fact, some have labeled it a war poem. It's God going to war against the Assyrians and he does so and uh, destroys them completely. So chapter one is about God. Chapter two and three are that are uh, is about Nineveh and the destruction of the city. But I want to focus with you on the first seven verses, and basically I would like to zero in on three um, God is statements. It says God is jealous 
and avenging. God is slow to anger. God is, verse 7, good. So look at those first seven verses with me. Look at verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. Now, the first may surprise you that God is a jealous God. Um, that's, that may be kind of new to some of you. And the second part is new to our culture, right? That God is an avenging God, that God does justice. God gets right and wrong all figured out and all dealt with in his own way, in his own time. So our land, our culture, um, does not in particularly uh, like to focus on God as an avenging God. Because in our land, in our world, God is good and God is love and God is kind. And, and I don't disagree with that. I just happen to also believe, according to the Bible, that God is also jealous of us and he is an avenging God. And we'll look at those in detail. Now, in us, for you and for me, jealousy is not a good quality, right? Jealousy is when I want what you have. I want your power. I want your money. I want your success. I want your position. I want your power. Um, jealousy is not a good quality in us. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, it is specifically listed as one of the qualities of the flesh. And jealousy is mentioned specifically as something that as believers we should never do. And so when it's used, jealousy, when it's used of us, it's not a good thing. So what does it mean that God is jealous um, and avenging? And so when, when we say God is jealous, I, I need you to turn back to the book of Exodus, actually to the Ten Commandments, to Exodus chapter 20. Um, and I would like you to, uh, to see that number of places in Scripture, of which we're about to read one, a number of places in Scripture, God explains that He is a jealous God. He allows no other gods before him. He brooks no competition. So here's the opening words to the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and you ha shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, on earth beneath, or in waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And, and that's just one among a number of scriptures where God declares that he is jealous. And, and he means very simply that he, he does not allow anyone to take his place, anyone or anything. And in the Assyrians, the Assyrians had all kinds of gods and all kinds of goddesses, but their main god was Asher, hence their name Assyrians. And Asher was a, a, a false god, but kind of the head of the, the Assyrian pantheon. And, and so the kings, uh, the kings of, of Assyria took on his, his role 
And so here's a direct quote. This is an actual quote from a king by the name of Ashurbanipal. There's one of those weird names. And Ashurbanipal wrote, I am Ashurbanipal, the great king, the mighty king, the king of the universe, the king of Assyria. The great gods magnified my name. They made me rule. They made my rule powerful. Wow. Didn't we just read that God allows no other gods to take his place? And here's Asher Bannerpal boasting about how great he is. Or uh, one of his successors by the name of Esarhaddon. Esarhaddon was even more boastful. He wrote, and I quote, I am powerful. In fact, I am all powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I am honored. I am magnified, and I am without equal among all kings, the chosen one of Asher, Nebu, and Marduk. Whoa. I've often said God loves a good fight because he's never lost one. God had no place, there was no room for the gods of Assyria for the goddesses of Assyria. So God is first of all jealous for his position. And, and, and we need to understand that, that he is, he is jealous in the sense that he allows no one or nothing to take his place. And that's true for you and it's true for me. God is jealous. There is no other God but him. But the second part of that is, God is jealous for us, for his people. Um, in, in the uh, Exodus chapter 20, um, in verse 6, it describes, it says this. Oops, there we go. I show love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. God is not only jealous of his position, he is jealous for his people. And, and I would add a word there or put a word in the place of jealous for his people. I would say he is zealous for his people. And so uh, the Lord is not only jealous of his position, he is zealous, he shows loving kindness to thousands and thousands because he is zealous for us, his people. Now, I need you to look at verse 3, back in Nahum, chapter 1. If God, it says in verse 2 that God is a jealous and avenging God. Secondly, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. He's slow to anger and great in power. God is slow to anger and all of his people should say, hallelujah, praise his name. I among, among many are glad for his patience. We'll get to that in just a second because I believe Second Peter tells us why he is patient. But God answers here this question, uh, Lords, what's taken you so long? Why has a hundred years of, of Assyrian rule gone 
uh, gone undealt with? Why, Lord, where are you? Why haven't you acted? Uh, what's taking you so long? And that's not just a question, though, for the Israelites. Isn't it your question? Isn't it my question? I mean, you have a wayward child, and you, you want to know, Lord, where, what's taken you so long? Why haven't you acted on my behalf? Maybe uh, you have the boss from the dark side, and you say, Lord, why? Why me? Why now? Why not? Maybe you have a life-altering illness, and, and you ask the same, same, same questions. Maybe you don't know where the next paycheck's coming from. Maybe you would look at this pandemic we're all living in and under. Um, Connie and I were tested this morning on our way to church for COVID. We both came back negative, by the way, which is why I'm here and why I'm not wearing a mask. But uh, I sat next to a guy uh, who had just, I was at the funeral and I helped uh, him bury his wife and he tested positive and I sat next to him. And so you look at the, this pandemic we live in and you say, Lord, where are you? Why? What's taking you so long? And then I'll just let you fill in the blank with your difficulty, your troubles, your trials. Lord, why? Where are you? Why don't you act? And I think the answer in part is found in 2 Peter chapter 3. In verse 8 and 9. Hear the word of the Lord. But do not forget, dear ones, with the Lord a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. In keeping with his promise, as some understand slowness, he is patient with you, excuse me, I repeated myself, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, his patience has a purpose. And his purpose is to allow time to pass by so that people around you or people around us, like me, have a chance to repent. I, I've, I've often wondered, and I did this study several years ago, I thought, why didn't the Lord just go to the book of Revelation and we could go through the tribulation, it's all over, and a thousand years has gone by, and then eternity starts. Wouldn't that be great? Doesn't that sound desirable? I mean, how many times have you as a Christian desired this to all be over and, and the, let's just get on with it. And so I stopped and did a little bit of study and I found out that millions and millions and millions of people are becoming Christians today. Now that's not true in America, unfortunately, but it's true around the world. Why is the Lord slow in acting on his promises? Why is he patient? So that many can come to repentance. And a whole nother sermon, uh, you know, why, why is God patient with us as Christians? Um, because we need to repent of the sin that we have committed. Um, uh, God is patient. He's giving us time to do that. But the specific here is 
Why is God patient? Why is God slow to anger? Why is God uh, slow in his acting on our behalf? Why is justice delayed? The answer is because he's patient. And so uh, you turn back to the book of Nahum and it shows the greatness, the powerfulness of God. Look at verse three again. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. And then the last part of verse three, all the way through verse six, and I'll read them for you, show God's power over nature in a very, I think, progressive manner. It starts with a very small. Look at it. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds. They are the dust of his feet. You have, uh, like me, have had the opportunity to go out and watch. You see these little, we call them dust devils, remember? And they, you see them in a nice little line and they're marching across the valley. Starts there and moves on to the storm, to the clouds, verse four, to the sea. He makes the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither with the blossoms uh, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. He is the Lord of the seasons. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt away. He is the Lord of the mountains. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. He is, the, he is Lord of the world. And who can stand before his indignation? Who can declare his fear? Who, excuse me, who can endure his fierce anger? And I believe he starts with whirlwinds and moves all the way down God's sovereignty, his powerfulness over nature, ends up with the whole world. And so he starts with a little bitty thing and ends with a great big thing. And God is the Lord of overall, over all of them. And so we then come to verse uh, seven. The Lord is good. Now, we could talk about the Lord's goodness in a variety of ways. We could talk about his general goodness. I mean, we have food, we have rain, we have shelter, um, we have a place uh, to work, um, things to do. We could talk about the goodness of God, or you could talk about it in the spiritual realm. He, he is forgiving, and he is compassionate, and he is gracious, and he is patient. But I believe the, the, focus, the focal point here of God's goodness is in one dimension especially, and that is his protectiveness, his zealousness for his people. Look at verse 7 again. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. And so the focus here is on God's protectiveness uh, of his people. Um, look at the next, the, the, it says he is our refuge. And literally he's the strong place or, or fortress. He is where we go to hide. And I don't know where you're hiding or what I'm hiding in. Um, the world would tell us, well, you, you hide in the stock market. You, you find your refuge in your bank account. You find your refuge in your work. You find your refuge in this or in that. But all of those can be taken away. 
And we need a refuge that cannot be changed, cannot be moved, and that is God himself. In fact, if you look at verse 7, it says, He cares for us. He, the personal pronoun. It's not in these things, and they're not bad things, but they're not our refuge. He is our refuge. He is our hope. And I hope you're not taking refuge in, in the government. I hope you're not taking refuge in, in, in America's place in the world. I hope you're not taking refuge in anything that is changeable. And so we are left with, so what are some takeaways? I mean, I, admittedly, I've just looked at the first seven verses and, and, and we could look at the rest of the book too, but just from those, those verses alone, what are the takeaways? Number one, God will deal with sin in his own way and his own time. Isn't that what the book is about? God is going to be the God of justice. Things will be made right, but it will be in his way and his time. I would like, uh, I would ask you if you, if you brought your Bibles, uh, just look at, look at the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation chapter 20, because here is a specific place and a specific time when God will deal with all mankind and he will deal with each one of us justly. And so chapter 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what was done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. There is a time coming when God will deal with each, uh, each individual according to his justice, according to his righteousness in his own time. And notice that there's two different books, two different kinds of books. There's a book singular, the book of life, where every believer, every Old Testament, New Testament, every Christian's name is recorded in the book of life. And my name is there. And, and I, I'm, I'm so grateful to the Lord that my name is there. But notice there's a second set, which is books, plural, because unfortunately, apparently, there's a whole bunch more people. And in it is a record of all their misdeeds, all the things that they didn't do and all the things that they should have done. And God will deal with them according to their deeds. In fact, it's repeated twice, just for emphasis sake. And God will deal with them in his way, in his time. And so we're going to get justice. It's just justice delayed. We don't get justice today. Your, your faith, my faith is just being marginalized, pushed onto the outside edges of our culture. 
the beliefs that you and I hold so dear are being attacked one by one by one. We are, are they can hardly wait for us Christians to go away, right? I mean, that's being honest. Is there a day of justice coming? When God will show what's right and what's wrong? Yes, there is. And I believe it's shown to us here in Revelation chapter 20. And it's an awful day. I mean, you should make sure that your name is written in the book of life, that you have put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, that he has has stood in, in your place and taken your judgment and your hell and your damnation because that's what he did on the cross. And he offers that to whoever would believe in him. I mean, in a, in a human sense, it's too good to be true. But it's true. And your name is either written in the book of life or the book of deeds. What's the second takeaway? I would argue that God's not in a hurry. Right? I mean, he looks at time differently. We just got through reading. A year is a thousand, uh, excuse me, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. He somehow deals with time differently than I. I am just a little bitty something in the midst of time. He is outside of time. Now, I just said something I don't understand, but I believe. But in his time and in his way, he'll deal with things. He's just not in a hurry. In the year uh, 6012 BC, in August of that year, Assyria meant its demise. It was a coalition of Babylonians and um, Medes and uh, Scythians, and they assaulted uh, Nineveh and they they took down the whole empire, and God used them to judge Assyria. By the way, if we could back up and just take a quick look, we would understand that that the Babylonians uh, were God's tool against the Assyrians. He used the Greeks against the Babylonians. He used the Romans against the Greeks. And well, that's the human story. That's our history. God may be patient, but he is never without power. And so we look at the country around us and, and, and we ask the question, you know, Lord, why aren't you changing my husband or my wife? today. Or maybe you're asking, Lord, why don't you make my situation better today? We could ask, Lord, uh, why is it, uh, why is Christianity so poorly thought of today? Aren't you going to act soon? You could ask the question, Lord, why haven't you changed me today? And the answer is, God's not in a hurry. A hundred years, and the Assyrians had, had, had oppressed the Israelites for almost 200, but it had been a hundred years since Jonah had been there. God's not in a hurry. So if he is patient, you and I need to be patient. 
Thirdly, I think we uh, take away from this book is we can take refuge in God's character. We're not to take refuge in, in this world. We're not to take refuge. Our hope is not in this country. I'm going to get in trouble for this. And if you're going to send an astigram, be sure to send it to Pastor Sam and not to me. Our hope is not in a political party. It's not who's president and who's not. Our hope is in the Lord. He doesn't change. I, I just, way back and I was a senior in college and using the good old King James, I memorized these words. God is not a man that he should lie. He's not the son of a man that he should repent. Has he not said it and will he not do it? Has he not spoken and will he not make it good? My hope, your hope, our hope is in the Lord. It's in him. It's not in the stuff around us. Our hope is in the Lord. He is our refuge. And then I would just uh, close with this, that God is zealous for us. You say, well, you know, aren't we, don't we know that as Christians? Oh yeah, we probably do. But if you're like me, um, you try and try and, and you so often fail. And next thing you know, you're thinking, well, God must not like me as much anymore. Or, God is unhappy with me. And I needed to hear this again, that God is jealous, or I would put the word zealous, for me, for you. In fact, I, uh, I, I put uh, zealous, here's some, here's some synonyms. He is fervent. He is passionate. I like this one. He is fiery. He is devoted. He is eager. He is wholehearted. He is intense for you, his child. God is on your side. And, and if you don't take away anything from the book of Nahum, take away that. That God is for you. He is on your side. God is with us. And he's our hope. I would close with John chapter 10 and verse 10 where Jesus himself said these words. Jesus said, the thief he only comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the limit. That you might have life and have it to the full. And that's what God wants for you, for me, for us, his children. An old book? Sure. Old history? Yep. Is it profitable? Yeah. Because it reminds us again that God is for us and God loves us. 
Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you very much for the opportunity to open the book of Nahum, to be reminded of your character, that you, you, you will take care of things in your own way and your own time, that you're not in a hurry, that you're patient, you give us an opportunity to repent, and that in the end, you are our refuge and you are zealous for us. Lord, help us to love no one better than you. Let us have no one and nothing take your place. And we thank you that we get to, to believe that God is on our side, that he is for us. So we thank you today that you haven't changed. And we ask your blessing on us as your people. Not always because we deserve it, because of who you are and whose name we give thanks and pray. Amen.